Good evening, everyone. Uh, I know it's the late in the um, evening, so I particularly appreciate um, those of you who are attending and particularly those who will not fall asleep. Um, it's great to be here. I, I think this is going to be a fascinating panel. I'm already excited because I had chats with the panelists right before, and a lot of what they have to say is, is going to be really interesting. Um, so let me sort of briefly introduce the panel structure, uh, what the panel we'd like it to be about, um, kind of the format. Um, so the panel uh, is, is titled um, From Ideas to Policy, Sort of Challenges for Policy in, in Africa and South Asia. Um, we have uh, panelists who both represent, who are actual policymakers, who are active in the policymaking arena, and also uh, panelists who've helped uh, orchestrate, particularly IGC's work uh, in, in countries in Africa and in South Asia. Uh, the structure of the panel is going to be, um, I'll have a short introduction of what the broad sort of ideas in the panel we're exploring, uh, and then we'll have the panelists each have about five to seven minutes as sort of opening remarks. Uh, broadly touching on the themes uh, of the panel, but kind of giving their own perspectives on those themes. Uh, and then really what we'd like to do is have an engaged discussion amongst the panelists. Uh, I'll sort of moderate that discussion, but kind of coming back on some of the things they're raising and having them further elaborate on those things. Uh, and once we've done that, then we'll open up to a broader audience Q&A. Uh, I'll be accumulating questions as you ask. Uh, I'll explain the general rules, but the general rule for questions is um, just generally introduce yourself when you ask a question. Try to keep your question fairly brief. Uh, my general rubric, what I tell my students when you ask questions, is ask a question which you think more than just you would be interested in hearing the answer to. Uh, generally, I think we should have the answers. We want to maximize the kind of public value of the questions as well, and so ask those questions. Um, with that, let me sort of briefly talk a bit about, I'll introduce myself and talk a bit about the, 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 the goals of the session and what we'd like to have a discussion on. So uh, I'm an economist. I'm a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. I happen to be the lead academic uh, for IGC Pakistan. I also happen to be, have a, I grew up in Africa, so I'm very happy to be on a panel finally where we have Africa and South Asia together. So I, uh, it, it brings me two, two parts of my identity are actually finally on, on the same table. Um, in terms of what we wanted to do, have the panel really explore is it's a theme which the IGC itself has been has been sort of mandated with and has 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 has, has been working on for the last few years but it's a much broader question I think we face in development which is a lot of what development is about uh, what we're trying to achieve in the development process is is taking ideas uh, and those ideas may not be as, as the Minister of Finance pointed out to me those ideas necessarily don't have to be new ideas but it is about taking ideas into policy spaces and seeing if we can actually implement those ideas, if we actually do the things we think work well in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different context. Uh, often the context might be a textbook, but hopefully the context is another country, and seeing what are the challenges in doing that. And so what I was hoping the panelists would do is share with us some of those thoughts they have on, on both the challenges in the process of doing so, this sort of struggle, and when do you get sort of effective development to happen, and is it about the novelty of the idea, is it about the novelty of the implementation of the idea, which is often a bigger challenge even in the idea itself. So draw on their own experiences, not just within the IGC domain, uh, everyone on the panel over here, except probably myself, is has immense experience in this sphere, and so we'd like them to draw on both their experience within IGC, but even more broadly their experience in this general sphere. 
So that's kind of the general, and but, but both on the successes and the failures. I think there are interesting lessons to be drawn from that. And what I'll do is, as they, as they give kind of those broad ideas, uh, I will come back and kind of probe a bit further. Um, um, as, I, as I forewarned the panelists, my general tendency is to play devil's advocate. So even if I personally agree or disagree with them, I'll tend to disagree in my Q&As just so that I can get a, I've always believed that um, taking a protagonist view is always interesting for the audience. And so I welcome you guys to do the same in your questions. Um, so with that, uh, let me briefly introduce all the four panelists and then we'll go in the order in which we're sitting from left, from my left to, to my right. Um, so uh, on, my, uh, on my extreme left, we have uh, Dr. Hafiz Sheikh. He's the finance minister of Pakistan. He's uh, uh, clearly um, uh, been involved in a, in a very interesting period for Pakistan. And I think there'll be in very interesting examples he can share, both in the examples of successes and, and some of the challenges he's faced in his tenure. Um, um, to, to his left, we have Dr. Uh, we have Luis Kasakende, who's the deputy governor of the Bank of Uganda, and we had some interesting conversations also about Africa, what he feels has has been kind of the things which have worked really well in Africa, and other things which he feels are kind of bigger challenges. And so, I, I'm I'm hoping to elicit some of the comments he already made to me earlier. Um, um, and for, for, for lack of a better word, both of these are active in policy spheres. They, they really are engaged in a day-to-day decision-making. Uh, I'm particularly thankful for both of them to take time away because I, I can imagine this is costing GDP of their countries for them to be here for a bit. So hopefully the cost is not too significant, but uh, nevertheless, we are imposing a cost. So let's make it worth their while. Um, on my right, we have two individuals who've, who've had extensive careers in the IMF and the World Bank, both in, in, in organizations which have been in the business of really supporting countries countries. Now uh, they've both been leading the IGC for various country initiatives. Uh, we have Dr. Um, Omotunde Johnson, who is the Syria Loan uh, IGC country director in his most recent incarnation. Um, uh, and I'm hoping we'll hear a lot from him about kind of what he's viewed from his perspective, both being in the IMF and more recently on, on what have been interesting sort of uh, idea generation and challenges. Uh, and to the extreme right is Dr. Ijaz Nabi, who's um, also had an extensive career um, in the World Bank before and now more recently as the country director of IGC Pakistan, someone I interact with on a very regular basis and have the highest regard for. So I'm, I'm very happy that he's agreed to be on this panel along with Dr. Johnson as well. So without further ado, uh, let me uh, have the uh, Minister of Finance, Pakistan, start with the opening statements. Um, and then we'll just move, like I said, in that order. So thank you again, sir. OK. Uh, thank you very much. Let me start by thanking the organizers for giving me the opportunity to be here and be part of such a distinguished panel. Um, I'm also delighted uh, that uh, both South Asia and African experience will be shared here. In an earlier life, I had the opportunity to work in uh, Africa and also in other countries of South Asia. So I feel that uh, you know, this is a timely moment because both these regions, I think, are beginning to realize their potential. And uh, a lot is expected. And the way policies are designed and implemented will definitely shape the destiny of the people of these two regions. Uh, let me start by sharing with you uh, in a couple minutes uh, the state of Pakistan. It's a country uh, that's undergoing uh, a very exciting period of its history. It's a country in transition. Democracy has made a comeback. There are elected governments, both in the center and the four provinces. Landmark legislation has been 
passed by the parliament. The constitution has been fully restored. There are coalition governments in all the uh, provinces and the center. So the tendency to try and dominate, to try and be dictatorial is curbed. People are learning to live in a culture of give and take, of accommodation. Uh, this is also a period where institutions so essential for uh, development and long-term growth are being allowed to flourish and play their role. The Supreme Court and the other courts are active. There's a public accounts committee of the parliament which is headed by the leader of the opposition. Media is free to criticize and comment and critique. Uh, the more than 80 plus television channels which, are, uh, which do this job with relish. Uh, we have an autonomous uh, central bank. We have an autonomous securities exchange commission. We have an autonomous competition commission. We have regulators which have been freed from the influence of the ministers and the ministries. And we have provinces which are trying to reassert their autonomy and make the country purely federal country. So this is a time where both uh, the institutions are trying to find their role. They are trying to determine the limits of what they can do. And I think this provides a context within, within which decision making, policy making takes place, both in terms of the opportunities that are there and the limits that are there and have to be recognized. I will share with you uh, two or three areas of uh, recent experience and one or two of our past experience to uh, kind of uh, begin the discussion here on growth, uh, development, and above all, the issue of uh, implementation, which seems to be central. Now, uh, in this period that we've had, we have made two or three uh, important decisions, and they are far-reaching, and they're shaping the way our country is going to evolve. The first is a determination to devolve powers, authority, and resources away from the center, the federation, Islamabad, to the provinces. Why was it done? Because we felt that the things that matter to the people, uh, the things that we have not done well as a country, and the things that need to be redressed, which are uh, expenditures in social sector, in education, and in health, and in maternity care, and in municipal service, drinking water, vaccination, women empowerment, law and order, the things that matter for improving the quality of life that ultimately form development are those in the domain of the provinces. And not only that, but the interactions with the businesses, the attraction of investment, the way that governments can uh, facilitate private sector also are in their domain. So we sat together and the parliament passed legislation to transfer 18 ministries to the provinces. Very significantly, in fact, perhaps more importantly, we sat together and decided how to allocate more resources to the provinces. So in the past, the resources were shared evenly, 50% for the center, 50% for the provinces. And now we decided basically to transfer roughly 70% to the provinces and 30% to the center, 
because the center has to do the job of national defense, for paying off debt, and having a civilian government. So this is a transformational change. How was it achieved? It was through a political consensus, through legislation, and through uh, advocacy, and through a coming together of different parties. The other uh, important area which I think is transformational for the region is the opening up of our business and economic relations with our neighbors, particularly India. So what we are doing is uh, liberalizing the visas, liberalizing the trade regime. We've granted uh, MFN status to India. And what we want to do is unlock this great potential that exists, which can enhance trade and investment by 20 to 50 billion. And I think that's, again, a case where the momentum has been built up through consensus generation and through legislation and cabinet decision making and so on. An area where I want to uh, mention where the government did not succeed, just to be fair and balanced, is where we tried to impose a integrated value-added tax. Now, this was a situation, a commitment with the IMF, but we could not succeed because the political arithmetic could not be generated in the parliament. And when the businesses realized the degree of documentation that would be required, when the provincial government that was in the Punjab felt that it would maybe alienate some of their pockets of support, and when a coalition partner of the government that has votes from Karachi decided that it would also alienate their support, that kind of consensus could not take place, and the government had to fall back and achieve the same results through alternate ways of eliminating exemptions in the sales tax regime, eliminating zero rating, so that a roughly similar uh, achievement was un undertaken, but the original idea could not generate, and I think in the discussion we can talk about how these things actually get done. Now, the final point I want to make is, about, I'll just uh, share with you uh, my experience, a single incident from the past. I used to live in Boston. This is sometime in the 80s or early, uh, I think, uh, late 80s. I visited a professor in Karachi University when I was visiting my country. I went to his house. There was a, it was the day of the uh, wedding of his daughter. So, you know, there was a lot of hoopla and everybody was sitting around having their samosas or whatever. And suddenly the doorbell rang. And, you know, uh, said, who is that? And they said, it's the people from the telephone department. And they had come to install a telephone. And this professor friend of mine said, isn't it interesting that I had applied for the telephone the year my daughter was born, and on the <laughs> wedding day, they have come. And it occurred to me that instead of 20 years, there were countries then where you could get a telephone in 20 minutes. And a few years later, we could get it in 20 minutes too. We could get it in 20 seconds. In fact, people were running after you to get their telephones, and people were kind of like, I already have to. So what changed? 
And the point I'm trying to make is there's the same Pakistanis, but what changed was the set of arrangements, the institutional arrangements. What we did, what we used to do is have a telephone company that was under the Ministry of Telecoms. And we used to have regulation, which was under the Ministry of Telecom. And we used to have the ownership of the entire sector, it was under the Ministry of Telecom. And policy making of the sector under the Ministry of Telecom. And then we said it's not working. So policy making was left for the ministry. Regulation was done by independent regulator. The ownership was sold out to the private sector as well as opened up for private sector competition. And suddenly you find efficiencies coming back. So we have a model and if that same is replicated, I think we can generate the kind of results. Final point on the issue of implementation. I think a lot is being made of uh, generating ideas, new ideas, innovation, and so on. And the point I want to make is innovation in and by itself is not a substitute for implementation capacity. Because there are good ideas conventional ideas, maybe non-innovative ideas, but useful ideas, but they don't get implemented. So what one wants to do is that innovation itself should be focused on how to get the incentive regime altered to create incentives for implementation. And implementation, in my view, is like any other good. You, if you don't spend on it, you are not going to get the results. So what we have to do is figure out ultimately, uh, one, that we need to have consensus, two, legal arrangements, third, institutional arrangements, and fourth, very importantly, the design of incentives. If we cannot have a government service, and in my experience, nobody in the government has ever been punished for doing nothing. <laughs> Okay. Whereas even the slightest mistake in trying to do something can land you in trouble. <coughs> so this asymmetric reward structure is the source of, uh, you know, some of the implementation problems that we have. So I would like really that the discussion focus on ultimately how to create the right set of incentives and learning from experience by localizing it, understanding the constraints as well as the culture to try and get the results done. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. Those are very illuminating comments. Uh, I think we're going to come back to it in a lot of the Q&A, I'm pretty sure. But let's just keep going. Um, and so I'd ask Luis to sort of um, add his perspective. Uh, thank you, moderator. Um, <coughs> I should start by uh, First of all, saying that uh, my experience is uh, mainly in uh, central banking. I've spent uh, most of my working life in, uh, in a central bank. And maybe at uh, the end of my presentation, some of, some of you may think that I've been presented a very biased picture, uh, given uh, this experience. But let me then go back to the broad theme, which is ideas to, to, to policy. My first take on this is that uh, we do not lack 
ideas and I agree with the previous speaker that uh, the ideas are there uh, whether you look at uh, World Bank publications IMF publications publications from our research institutes academia the ideas are there and uh, there are three publications that come to mind in terms of uh, ideas. Uh, there was a group which was uh, headed by Alan Gelb in the 90s that was talking about Africa. Africa can claim the 21st century. And it was again focusing on what has to be done for Africa to claim the 21st century. You have a publication by the World Bank which was Africa can compete. And again it was focusing on things that Africa should do. Uh, if it is to compete. More recently, there is the Oxford <coughs> Companion to the Economics of Africa. Again, it is looking at what are those constraints, what should Africa do if it is cl to claim the 21st century. And I believe that actually Africa is this next frontier to development, but it's not going to come on a silver plate. We have to do certain things for Africa to, to be this next frontier of, uh, of development. So I just want to pick out some four areas that I think where we've not done very well as Africa, and then pick two areas uh, where I think we have done uh, very well. I think promoting private sector investment in labor-intensive modern industries in a number of countries in Africa has been a failure. And I'll come back to this particular point. The second area is we talk a lot about agriculture, the heavy dependence of agriculture, the relevance of agriculture to our economies, food security. But we've not done very well with uh, modernizing and commercializing smallholder agriculture. The third area is the demographic transition. You still see population growth rates which are about 3%, over 3%. That if you have a, a growth rate of 3 point something percent, it is taken up a lot by this uh, growth rate in population that whenever you look at it in, in real terms per capita growth rates are quite very low. So I think that's another area where we've not yet done uh, very well. And then economic governance I think is another area. On the area of uh, private sector development I think most of the countries will talk about a transition to market-based policies. Private sector is this critical area of, uh, of development. But I think we've not yet done sufficient analysis as to the main constraints to the growth of, uh, of uh, the private sector. What are these constraints? And focusing on those constraints so that uh, the private sector can become more active. Rural development, I think, is uh, a major uh, challenge for uh, a number of, uh, of, uh, of uh, countries. Uh, I'm already running out of, uh, of, of time. Let me, let me then uh, um, 
pick out some two success areas. The first success area is macroeconomic management. Africa has improved the macroeconomic environment. Look at inflation across uh, a number of countries. This will be one time that uh, I think the IMF should be congratulated. <laughs> For only once. <laughs> <laughs> For all its failures, I think the yeah, IMF should uh, take credit for the improved macroeconomic management across uh, Africa. Um, if, even I know we, we've uh, sometimes point to weaknesses in the fiscal, but I think even fiscal management has improved a lot in Africa. And uh, it is one of the reasons that we were able to ride through uh, the financial crisis. Uh, many of the countries had sufficient buffers that uh, they were able to rely on to move through the financial crisis. The second area where we are doing very well is the banking reform. If I compare the state of the financial sector in the 80s and 90s and what we have, now the agenda for financial reform is not yet complete. People will point out the high intermediation cost, people will talk, point out all sorts of gaps in terms of delivery of uh, financial services. I agree. But uh, the financial sector is more vibrant now than uh, um, <coughs> it was during the 90s. And I'll point out maybe two, three reasons why we've done very well. The two areas where we've done very well, you do not need to improve efficiency across the whole civil service to deliver macroeconomic, uh, the improvement in the macroeconomic environment. You can depend on a selected few members of staff. That's why I think we've done very well, especially in the central banks. Central banks have, have, uh, are usually a, a sort of an island of efficiency. That's why I said you might think I'm biased <laughs> since I work for a central bank. But, uh, Having this island has helped in uh, improving the macroeconomic environment. Then, uh, two, you can limit political patronage in uh, these uh, uh, two areas. But the third one, that's why I said I needed to say IMF needs to take some credit. Maybe IMF, World Bank, BIS should take credit as an external agent of reform or an external agent of change, especially in the improved uh, uh, financial sector. You look at regulations across Africa uh, for regulating, the, especially the banking sector, they have been strengthened and you have more capitalized institutions. What we need to work on is, uh, are the efficiency issues. I thank you. Great. This is uh, excellent. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll immediately just move straight uh, to, to Dr. Johnson um, and continue kind of the same chain of conversation that we've started having. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, um, for these introductory remarks, I'll stay at the conceptual level. I, I have lots of examples if you want later. Um, the question, it seems to me, is how does one get ideas to influence policies? I would summarize what is required in two sentences. First, make sure there is a genuine and effective demand for the ideas. Second, find out and do 
what it takes to give implementation a good chance of success. Uh, let's consider the first, the matter of ensuring effective demand. In this context, first, the ideas must address policy issues of major concern to the policymakers. The more important are the issues addressed by the ideas to the policymakers, the greater the audience the, the ideas will get. One way to assure this is to find out through intensive engagement the policy concerns of the authorities. In the world of policymaking, user requirement and demand-driven policy advice are very important. Second, once the above requirement is satisfied, the person coming up with the, with the ideas must do some big picture investigation. Unless that person has worked in that institutional and organizational setting before and not too long ago. In other words, context is important. Even though the advice may be narrowly focused on a very small topic, that topic is typically embedded in a very big problem area. For instance, the problem area could be very large, such as private sector development or financial sector development. Or it could be not too large, such as technical and vocational education and training or monetary policy. But one typically cannot address a particular issue such as the reserve requirement policy of the central bank or the role of private enterprises in the financing of TVET without paying attention to some bigger picture. Third, it is rare to find policy advice being sought or being given without any policy already being in place, whether by design or by default. The ideas person should therefore investigate this history, why the policy framework exists or was introduced, and what are or has been its merits and demerits in the current situation of the country. Fourth, an obvious point in the design stage, but one which is frequently violated, is to make sure that there is much discussion with those operating in the system as the ideas are emerging in the mind of the ideas person. Once the above requirements have been met, the next obvious challenge is how to give implementation a chance. Given that the ideas are considered sound by those with power in the, in the leadership of the recipient country or some re relevant organization within the country. Those responsible to implement the policy advice face certain challenges in the typical African setting. First of all, my own view is that the policy implementation failings that we observe in practice in most of the African countries tend to come mainly from weaknesses in governance arrangements, rules, processes, and organization, which in turn come from weaknesses in leadership and in cooperation. So ultimately, paying attention to leadership and cooperation are of paramount importance in the policy-making environment for economic growth in Africa. The ideas person concerned with implementation then must investigate the institutional and organizational environment responsible for implementation of the ideas he or she has offered. 
and recommend reforms as he or she feels are needed to promote implementation. The advice could include suggestions relating to organizational <coughs> structure adequate to perform the tasks. In some cases, there could be a need for capacity building to ensure that the tasks assigned to any organizational body or network can be accomplished. Finally, in the African setting, typically, monitoring and evaluation mechanisms have a particularly high value in the implementation process of framework. Thank you. I hope you guys were taking notes. I definitely was about the, the demand elicitation in the second part. Thank you, Dr. Johnson. That was great. Um, so, Ijaz, um, we'll have, um, you could conclude the, the first part. Yeah. I, I, you know, you want to get on to the interactive phase of this, I know I, this discussion. Yeah, this so, let me just pick up on one of the issues that Dr. Sheikh uh, pointed out in his uh, brief talk, which is the regional trade opening up. Uh, because I was involved with that when the idea first was mooted back in the mid-90s. Benazir Bhutto was the Prime Minister and she asked me to do a study on liberalizing trade with India. Uh, after much convincing, because she said there was no need to do a study, let's just get on with it. We completed the study and we went around and there was enormous opposition from the business community at that time for, uh, to liberalize trade with India. They had the usual protective stance towards the economy and they, would, they saw their rents being chiseled away because of competition. Uh, so they took a very, very strong uh, opposition. Uh, I went to various chambers and, 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 and drew enormous amount of criticism when I presented that report. Despite the fact that the report was done with a view to doing a, and this is what I needed to, to say to the Prime Minister to convince her that the study was, was required. Uh, I said, look, you need to understand who the gainers and losers will be from opening up trade with India because the losers will be very shrill, probably very well organized, and you will need to tackle that uh, politically. So you need to understand who the losers are likely to be. So despite the fact that the study has clearly demonstrated that the consumers would benefit, that by and large the producers would benefit, that the farmers would benefit, uh, and that the government would benefit because a lot of smuggled trade would become formal trade and therefore there would be custom revenue to be, uh, to be garnered from that. Uh, but there was one section of the manufacturing community that would be adversely affected, uh, but that uh, section of the community was extremely powerful uh, and well organized. So despite the overall results, we found it very difficult to make any progress uh, on a first proper attempt by the government of Pakistan to move on the agenda of liberalizing trade with India. That was the mid-90s. In 96, our government fell. We had several governments since then. Uh, we, th that report, that work, just couldn't gather the momentum uh, to, to have an impact in terms of actual liberalization of trade. At that time, Pakistan and India traded with each other, at least within, the pa within Pakistan's trade uh, policy framework, on the basis of a positive list. Most trade is done on the basis of a small negative list. In other words, here is a list of 10 items which are important for one reason or another to us. On everything else, you can trade. Positive list is highly restricted because it says, here are 600 items on which you can trade. The rest, you can't trade on. Uh, so it was a highly restricted trade regime. Uh, and it was uh, generating a lot of rents. And for the next 15 years, nothing really happened. 
And then I was back in Pakistan, and I was approached in 2010 by, the, by a new body that had been uh, formed in Pakistan. It's called the Pakistan Business Council. It's a collection of the large corporate sector uh, firms in Pakistan. They said, look, we are preparing an agenda of policy reform for the government, and uh, one of the themes that we want to work on is regional trade. And we would ask, we would request you to, to lead uh, that effort. Uh, I said, look, you know my views about this. In the past, the business community's views were opposite to my views. Are you sure you want me to lead this effort? They said, absolutely. They put together a, a panel of businessmen. And I was totally shocked because when we started to have our meetings, how pro-trade liberalization with India the business community had become over a period of 15 years. Uh, and, and the recommendations that we made to the government were far-reaching. The question is, what happened in these 15 years to make the business community change its mind about uh, uh, trade relations with India? I think one is, a, since, since 2001 and the war on terror, etc., the, 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 the isolation of Pakistani business community uh, from the international business community was a large factor. They felt that this kind of liberalization of trade regime with the neighbors would help address that. I think a second very important factor was India's own successful growth. India had been growing at 8 to, eight to 9%, and that was seen by Pakistani business community as an opportunity to use the relationship with India in a way to, 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 to get back into the international, uh, international market. A third important factor was uh, the region's own growth potential. It was not just India that was growing uh, rapidly. China, of course, was galloping away at 10%, and China is just to the, to the north of Pakistan. Uh, and it's no longer just the Pacific Coast China. It's Western China, and Western China is, is right across the border from Pakistan. And, of course, Central Asia's uh, independence from Soviet clutches and their resource-rich uh, uh, base. All of these factors were finally coming home to the business community in Pakistan, and, and, and the realization was coming home that Pakistan could be the connector of these big three markets. The market in the north, the western China, the market to the east, India, and the market uh, to, the, to the west in Central Asia. And Pakistan could play a vital role in connecting these markets initially through trade relations and, and, you know, a trading hub and transportation hub is a precursor to becoming a manufacturing hub. And I was impressed how deeply ingrained this idea had become in the larger business community, the larger corporate sector in Pakistan. And I think, and finally, uh, a, 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 I think the change in the view of the region by the security establishment in Pakistan was extremely important. The region was no longer viewed by the security establishment just as an issue of making sure that your borders are, 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 are the fences are erected and, 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 and the borders are protected, but they began to see uh, Pakistan's security uh, beyond just the security of, of borders, but the security in terms of how well Pakistan's economy was doing, and therefore how well Pakistan is integrated in the region. So it, it took those five or six major developments in, in order to change the view of the business community on uh, trade relations with India. And I think it has now given this uh, 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 a, a momentum that I think will be difficult to reverse. So 
Thank you so much, Adas. That was an uh, excellent example of, I guess, both a, an initial failure but then an eventual success. Um, so, so we'll come back to that. So, so I thought um, let's kind of have a bit of within-panel discussion and, and let me sort of uh, take the privilege of uh, the only benefit of being a timekeeper is you can actually get to ask the first set of questions. And so um, some of the views come coming from the policymakers, and I, I'm going to, I apologize, caricaturize the views a bit. But it sounds like, and I'll come back to specific questions, it comes back to sort of saying a bit about what makes, clearly, implementation is important. Uh, it's less about the novelty of the idea. It's about the power of the institutional willingness to adopt the idea or the, or the readiness of that. But some of the readiness to me seems almost like a Republican view of sort of small government readiness. So if I, so if I, if I, if I, if I put it in a particular way, uh, Mr. Saab, you, you mentioned um, Successful reform, for instance, being you know opening uh, being um, the privatization of phones. You give a very nice example of that, but the example there seemed to be one where you were disempowering various ministries. There was one ministry which had all the power, and it was sort of creating multiple players. And somehow that what one would have thought would be weakening of a central player somehow opened up the ability to innovate, to adopt new ideas. You also mention a, an equivalent of that in the political decision-making space, which is decentralization, which is saying now the federation in some sense has given up a lot of its powers to the provinces, and it's at least a weakening of the, of the centralization or the federation's power. And that also in some sense for you was, a, was an opportunity, was a, was, a, was a rosy picture of innovation. What I'd like you to talk a bit about is how do you think these two forces, this to me, if I were to play a, a role of strong government, sounds like, gosh, privatization, decentralization, decentralization less so because we still think it's still within the structure of the governance, but privatization for sure, independent regulators, well independent sounds like it's out of the foray of the government, who elects these guys, they're not representative of, of the average population. Is this, is this the recipe for innovation? Uh, is this that crucial ingredient you're looking for and are there costs to this ingredient? Okay, let me start first by saying that uh, there are things we don't know. Uh, in particular, I think uh, it's hard to say why certain countries choose to adopt a set of policies which transform their countries economically. And it's a big question. I think there are wiser people in this room than I am. But uh, if you talk of China and its potential, I mean, it has had that potential for 100 years. But uh, finally, what was it about Deng Xiaoping that that potential began to get realized? Singapore was a malarial swamp. Its per capita GDP was like that of India and Pakistan. Now it's maybe 50 times, 100 times more. People used to talk about the Malays in a very uh, derogatory way. And there's a literature that developed around their lack of initiative. And now uh, Kuala Lumpur is a jewel of a city in Malaysian growth is what everyone talks about. Um, so, I mean, these are questions we need to think about. What is it that triggers uh, a break from countries past into a future of the sort that transforms them within our lifetimes? And we have seen that. Uh, now, the role of policy 
okay, makers or advisors. You see, uh, research is important, policy making is important, advice is important. In an earlier life, I had the opportunity to work in 24 countries or something like that as an advisor. And what we need to recognize is that governments, uh, prime ministers, finance ministers, others are looking for advice that's not brilliant, but that's useful. And if the advisors don't get that point, typically if you do go a massive analysis of re, you know, literature, tell them about international experiences, tell them about their own situation, which they kind of know, but sometimes you bring totally new uh, insights into the picture. And then you kind of stop. But they are not interested in your <coughs> review of the literature. They're not interested in your summarizing international experience and stopping. You may get a paper out of it. Yes, it's good for you. And of course you get consultancy fees, which is also good for you. But what they are really looking for is, how do I set the tariffs for the automobile sector? How do I put in my budget what the tax slabs will be for income tax. So I think this important uh, kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say disconnect because advisors and uh, their advisors and their advisors, and, but this we have to grasp and in, uh, in order to be effective and in order to transform the way people think about things. Now, ultimately it's about uh, making the policymaker realize that his or her personal cost-benefit in terms of political costs and rewards and national benefits, there is a balance there. And when you talk of privatization, as you know, uh, in my earlier job I was uh, Minister for Privatization, and we privatized 34 transactions in banking and utilities and everything. And always the chief opponent of privatization was, guess who? the minister whose company you were trying to privatize, your cabinet colleague. So if you were trying to privatize electricity, the ministry for, minister for electricity, the secretary of electricity, and the chairman of the board, all of whom would be good friends of the president or the prime minister, <coughs> would be opposed. So that's what makes it interesting. And I think, uh, again, there's a lot of uh, literature on why some countries are able to privatize. For example, Pakistan privatized 34 uh, companies in three years, not that I was there or something, but during that time, and they haven't done a single one since. So, so what's a causal factor other than your absence? I think it is my absence. <laughs> no. Um, you, have to, uh, you have to be driven. And I think the person at the very top has to take responsibility because ultimately he or she is the one who's going to prevail over <coughs> the cabinet colleagues. And to recognize that it's important. I once, were, you know, when I was uh, uh, much younger, I had the chance to go to Sri Lanka and I, was, I had the opportunity to meet the then president. And so I was really excited. I put on my vest suit and tie and, you know, was trying to convince her that uh, you should really privatize. And she was like, why? And uh, because she had campaigned on, you know, a kind of a, a leftist 
platform. And I couldn't think of anything except to say that, okay, what is the most uh, important, uh, most, most important resource in your country, ma'am? And she kind of looked at me, and before she could answer, since I had thought of this, you know, I said, it's your time, madam. And she liked that. And I said, so, so I said, now, well, how do you want to spend it? You want to spend it on trying to run bus companies, or do you want to spend it on ending the civil war in Sri Lanka. And that's, uh, you know, she said, okay, just leave me alone. You can go and privatize two companies, the <laughs> telecom company and, and the ended up privatizing telecom and airlines. So that, again, uh, I think most governments, most uh, leaders in my interaction with them want to do the right things, okay? The question is, how does one uh, begin to have a dialogue where some of these things can be made to appear less alarming to them politically. And I think that's, uh, since that's your domain, you are now advisors, I'm a former advisor, you should enlighten us on that. I'm assuming you're looking at Ijaz and, and sure. Dr. Johnson over here. So, yes. uh, this is great, thank you. Um, I want to continue the same question in the same realm. I wrote down something you said which I thought was fascinating. You, you kind of, in your analysis of why you felt privatization in general hasn't worked as well, but kind of macroeconomic policies or banking reform has worked much better, is you've created an island, you call it sort of need just a few islands of efficiency. In some sense, these are, these are areas where, this I'm just putting words, kind of extending what you said and reading between, but I want you to expand a bit on that. Uh, you don't need all the civil service to improve, you just need to carve out an area, macroeconomic policy makers, central bankers, and that's where kind of policy can happen. And I guess the presumption is in privatization that couldn't happen. You couldn't carve out an island. So is that, is that the assumption? Is that, again, it's a, it's a way of sort of carving out a part of government and saying, gosh, forget the rest of the mess, let's just work on this part. Is that, is that your recipe? Or? Um, I want, first of all, to follow up uh, on an issue just raised by my colleague uh, on um, the role of a leader that uh, a leader can play in, uh, in the reform process. And uh, in the case of Uganda, the government that came in in 86 tried several things and uh, tried some policies that did not work. If anything, they increased distortions. So when you are looking for agents of change, the top leadership is also one that I think uh, needs to come into the picture, apart from this uh, uh, island. It becomes extremely difficult implementing anything if the top leadership is not yet sold to, to that particular So, so is that an accident, the top leadership, or is that a... I mean, that's what, you know, he's, he's, do we just wait for a serendipitous leader to show up and then suddenly all the ideas will get implemented, no, I, or is there, I, is there more? No, I think the point he was making, if I got it right, is that you have to work on this leader and convince and they will pick certain areas where the reform will be very fast. So macroeconomic management is one area where His Excellency was very convinced that uh, this is an area where we needed change. Everything else he had tried had not worked very well. So I agree with Johnson when he says that, uh, yes, you can be an external agent, but you also need a domestic agent for the change to be uh, successful. IMF by itself without uh, uh, domestic agents for, for, for change 
would have found it extremely difficult. Now, let me go back to this issue of uh, the islands. Uh, for macroeconomic management, once you get this team, that's your domestic agents for change, it becomes very easy to implement. It is easier because you are announcing certain things and the response is uh, the others, maybe the sectors of the economy, but you can, it is easier to implement. Okay. Um, than a number of the other policies, especially in public finance management, where you are dealing with maybe 20 ministries, where we are dealing with 30 ministries. That's, that was my point, that for financial sector reform, basically you are dealing with the central bank. Once you convince the central bank that we need financial sector reform, and you convince the presidency that you need financial sector reform, then if the policies become easy to... to to, to, to announce and then uh, do the implementation. So that's why I talked about this. So I want to pick up on a theme you've just raised and, and what Dr. Johnson said earlier. Y you know, this kind of demand-driven approach, and we've heard this a lot, you know, uh, academics on the research side keep hearing this sort of, this customer satisfaction, customer, you know, how would a marketing guy figure out what type of brand of potato chips to sell? Well, you go and ask people what they want and you kind of figure out what it is and you develop that product, right? The challenge, I think, that one faces in that is, is who are we talking about? Which policymaker, right? Uh, and something you said, you know, when there are many policymakers, if there's one leader and the leader has kind of ultimate power, it's easier. It may still be problematic because you still have to question who the leader is representing. So is it, is it that one politician? Is it those few bureaucrats? Is it the public citizenry whose demand you're eliciting? And if you go down that route, do you, do you worry that you end up leading to fickle decision-making? Do you end up responding to what we know has been documented as political business cycles or, or, or political kind of decision-making cycles? And, and how do we, as, as, as people who want to promote long-term policy, deal with that challenge of being demand-driven yet kind of having that issue? So what's, what's your read on that? It's easy and hard. Um, basically, you have to have... That's why I emphasized um, engagement, intensive engagement. And um, um, many of us found out that through the hard way almost. Intensive engagement is important. Um, you, you, you have to, I mean, for example, my last 10 years in, 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 in the IMF, uh, I spent doing mainly financial sector work. Um, headed a lot of missions to both to uh, Russia and East Asia and so on. You, you always have to find out through intensive engagement what different people think. You also find out who are the, who, who are the forces that you need to convince um, um, to, to, to get any change. And you also, even more importantly, find out how they are thinking and why they are thinking what they are thinking. So what if the intersection of that set is a null set? Oh, then, then, then you become a professor. <laughs> You, now, now you just go back and, and start convincing them how they should behave and what they should do. That's what I mean by you become a professor. And sometimes you have to do that. Now, but it is interesting, uh, the minister was talking about uh, ideas and, and, uh, and some people don't want summary of literature, some people don't want summary of countries' experience. What countries want tend to differ. Uh, for example, I went to countries where they just wanted you tell us this is the situation, give us advice, and you give them advice, and, and 
they take it or they don't take it. Um, I remember heading a mission to China, for example, and the Chinese said, we don't want you to tell us what to do. We just want you to tell us the experiences of other countries in this area. And that's what we did. Um, so in other words, countries differ, and you have to find out through intensive engagement um, what they really want, um, how they are thinking, and why they are thinking what they are thinking. Without intensive engagement, you can just go there and be a professor and, and just tell them, this is what I think. I have seen the problem, and this is what I think, and you go home. And don't be surprised. If you are lucky, they will, they, they will implement. If you are not lucky, they won't implement. Uh, Dr. Johnson, thank you. Um, so, Jazz, what I thought I'd look forward to you is both there's been a train of conversation started, and since uh, you had the misfortune of being the last person, you have the advantage now of kind of picking up both on that chain of discussion. But also, I mean, there's something you raised which kind of, when I was, to be honest, when you first started, I thought this was going to be an illustration of how, you know, a more careful analysis, which in trade theory we always talk about this, right? Why is trade reform so hard? It's obvious 101 econ is gains from trade, everyone will benefit. And you said, well, the whole issue is, is winners and losers. But if you go beyond the obvious question of is trade good, which most people probably think it's kind of good, the real research question, which the idea was to say, look, let me identify the winners and losers for you. And once I've done that, I thought the way the story would have progressed would be, well, now we figured out who the winners and losers are. We can estimate, we can, we can have the losers be more powerful or empower them to kind of counter the winners. But then the story kind of fell, the tire burst at that point. It seemed like, obviously, you must have thought of that. And somehow that didn't happen. Somehow it took 20 years for the for those same winners to, or the losers, or winners, I guess, the losers to become less powerful, the winners to, so it seemed, again, like a very wait and see when the moment is right, and then the idea will take germination, but you can't kind of do this analysis and get the winners, because we know, if you believe most of our results, there were a larger set of winners, even at that time, even at that point, there were a stronger lobby of winners. How was it that that didn't succeed? Why did we have to wait for these 20 years for this natural process of regionalization being so obvious, sir? Right. No, I, 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 don't think, um, I don't think that that effort uh, uh, was a complete waste. Uh, it didn't give, a, give the results in 97, which is what the prime minister of the time wanted. She was very clear in the cabinet meeting, meeting at which she decided to go ahead with this. She, she said, look, at the moment I have only one uh, avenue of communication with India, which is on this very complex issue of Kashmir. I want to open up a second avenue, and trade will be that avenue, and that avenue will have positive outcomes. On Kashmir, we don't know. So she was very clear about what she wanted. She, she was take, approaching trade in a very strategic way. I was very impressed, by the way, in my interaction with her uh, at that time. Um, now, even though in 97 a, that work lost momentum in the sense that you know, chambers were against it, uh, etc., the, the, the well-organized uh, uh, business community uh, was against it. Um, at the same time, there was continuous demand for that report. That was a, I'm, I've written many reports. Uh, you know, we're old enough to have had multiple incarnations. And uh, in a previous incarnation, I worked at the World Bank and did lots of reports on lots of countries. That one report, which was done at a fraction of the cost of the World Bank reports, has had the longest life because there was continuous demand. There was demand from new governments that came into power. There was demand from researchers in India 
because <coughs> India had not looked at the issue in the same way. There was demand, continuous demand from the security establishment. So the idea didn't die, but its implementation, that was not the right time for its implementation. It was only when the cost of not being part of the region became very obvious, and that happened with the rest of the region growing very fast and Pakistan's economy in the doldrums, uh, Pakistan's increasing isolation. That cost had to be felt in order for a consensus to evolve that, that that idea which has been percolating, has been circulating, it's time to actually implement that idea. So the idea didn't die. It's all the, all the necessary complementary support that you need for an idea to actually be implemented, that support didn't exist. And then finally, uh, it, it came about. So. Great. Um, so let me now, we have half an hour left, so let me open up to the panel. And generally, like I said, the rules are um, just briefly introduce yourself, try to keep your question fairly short. If you want to direct it to someone, do mention who you're directing to, otherwise it's fine to ask a general question. We'll accumulate three or four questions at a time, and then we'll respond to them collectively to kind of maximize the number of questions. Um, uh, and if there is, um, if you don't have a mic near you, if you don't mind speaking loudly so everyone in the audience can hear the question, the gentleman in the middle and then the gentleman on the, uh, on the end. If you, if you mind introducing yourself briefly first and then the question. government that comes in has a new set of advisors. Great. Thank you. Uh, gentleman at the back. My name is Claudio Stamos. I am from IGC Sierra Leone. Uh, what is obvious to me is that uh, the implementation of certain policies are usually predicated by the urgency of the situation. Like many African governments, for example, adhere to IMF conditionalities when they had crisis in, 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 in their economies. And the, the, the most developing countries do have a strong man. And that strong man leads um, implementation of certain policies that he's convinced about. Sometimes it's because he wants to have a good record uh, on, on uh, 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 his historical uh, uh, measurements after he's left office. Sometimes he does it because he, he wants to stay in power and sometimes he does it because he wants to make money or his cronies want to make money out of a certain policy. So um, my own take <coughs> therefore is that the major challenges usually come from very strong sources under very adverse conditions. We have to wait for a disaster to wait for reform. Um, other questions? Um, if you don't mind when you speak, uh, please wait till the person comes to you because we're recording this. So um, the gentleman over here, why don't one of you be on top, one of the bottoms so we can uh, maximize at a time. The two, uh, okay, go ahead. Hi, my name is Arif Rahman. Uh, I am currently working. Speak into the mic, please. Yes, yeah, sorry. My name is Arif Rahman. Uh, I am currently working for Citigroup. Uh, my question is to uh, Mr. Hafiz Sheikh. And the question is that, uh, what I was thinking is that uh, in your speech or talk today, you are going to tell us or share your uh, experiences as to how the life of the common people in Pakistan has improved, being a minister. 
what I would say is that in terms of the policies which have been adopted uh, by your government, for example, uh, you know, printing notes and privatization and uh, increasing indirect or indirect taxation, and also, uh, uh, you know, uh, these banking sector reforms, uh, bringing in this uh, credit uh, influx in the, uh, in the, you know, society. What it has done is, uh, has affected the life of the people. You know, it has caused more poverty in Pakistan. That's what we see. How, you know, the, the points which you mentioned. Three so sorry, what's your question? That is my question. Yeah. How the three points which you mentioned has actually improved the life of the common people. Okay. I don't see that happening, by the way. Thanks. Okay, uh, we'll take one more, and then we'll respond uh, quickly. Um, the gentleman right there to the, to the right. Thank you. My name is Ben Akabu, I work for Lagos State Government, Nigeria. Um, I'm still really struggling with um, this uh, attribution of credit to IMF for uh, the low infl inflation as well as a lot of the uh, financial stability that um, uh, you know has been recorded in Africa lately and you know if I take my own country in particular first of all we, we haven't quite achieved low inflation we're still struggling with inflation in the double digits between 10 and 12 uh, percent but yes We've had um, financial sector reform that, you know, whether it's the, cap you know, capitalization and all of the whatever which have been largely internally driven. So, but perhaps I'm, I'm not sufficiently familiar about, um, you know, the programs that they have implemented or supported in the other countries in the region. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. Uh, so let's have quick responses to these, and then we'll take a next round. So um, if you want to start uh, in the same order we're given, there was a question about closure of industries, Minister, and then maybe you can respond in the same vein to the uh, how has a common man's life changed because of the policies. Uh, and Ajaz, if you want to, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Well, I came here hoping to escape Pakistan and Pakistani questions, but it seems <laughs> like uh, no matter where you are, somebody will surface who wants to ask you the question that people ask every single day in your own country. So um, the question of circular debt, I don't know if you want to bore everyone else here about talking about the issue of circular debt. Circular debt for the you know, benefit of my non-Pakistani colleagues is mm, something to do with the electricity sector of Pakistan. Typically, um, any electricity company buys fuel and buys electricity from private sector and has to pay for it. And that's roughly about 350 to 375 billion, which the electricity company has to pay. Uh, at the same time, the electricity company has to receive money from people it sells electricity to. That's also roughly 350 to 375 billion. So if the electricity company did a good job of collecting its bills, there would be no thing such a circular debt. But the electricity company doesn't do a very good job. So as a result, the finance ministry has to keep coming in and paying the people who keep knocking on the door of the electricity company. And that is the circular debt. So Although, to be fair, the, the payer of the debt is also a government entity. 
the, the, the collection which is not happening is often from, so no. I guess that's the spirit of the question. No, about uh, 100 plus of that are government entities and provincial governments, and about 200 plus of those are private sector people. So this uh, so-called circular debt has been solved many times by the federal government, that is the finance ministry paying, but it resurfaces because the electricity company doesn't do a good job of collecting its bills. <laughs> so I know that it's a source of worry for all of us, above all for me, because I have to pay. And uh, a lot is being done on this front, and uh, it's something that we need to work harder to make the electricity company's incentives right to try and inject uh, private sector orientation in them. And that was the point I was making also, that uh, there are models that we need to adopt, and a lot of changes have been made in the electricity companies, board of directors, its distribution companies, uh, managements, and so on. But the results will take a bit of time. Partly the problem is that uh, electricity generation has shifted a lot towards imported oil. And as the prices of oil have gone up, as an import-dependent country, the price of electricity has gone up as well. So I think part of the problem uh, of the electricity sector has to do with the rise in the prices of oil. What the government has done, really, it has been very bold. It has tried to pass on the price of electricity, but there are limits to what can be done without having riots on the street. So I think 80% of the price of electricity has been increased in the last uh, uh, two, three years. So I think this is a continuing uh, sort of a challenge and has uh, multiple... So if you can link the, that solution yeah. to the, I guess, the butt of the next question, which was how is the common man affected? So clearly that yeah. is a concern for the I common think, man. And so. then the, the issue of the continuity of policies, I think that's very important. And in fact, most of the countries that are cited for having transformed themselves they all had either same leadership or leadership of a similar sort pursuing a set of policies for a sufficiently long period of time. And in my talk yesterday, I had said part of Pakistan's economic history has been that we have had growth, really high growth, but these have been spurts of four years, maximum five years, and they have not been converted into long-term trends because we as a country have not figured out the way how to make political transition that is smooth and not costly and not disruptive to what has been achieved. And I think that's why the coming elections are going to be important because this will be the first time in our history that a democratic government will complete its tenure and hopefully through elections a new government will come up. About the, you know, this is a long discussion about how the life of the common people has improved. Uh, I think this government has done a lot in terms of uh, social safety nets. We have an income support program which is appreciated the world over, including international agencies, DFID, and so on. We have focused, especially, as I said, in transferring more resources to the provinces for social sector and quality of life indicator improvements. We have particularly identified backward areas or regionally less developed areas, such as Balochistan, whose budget was increased from 40 billion to 90 billion in one year. The tribal areas, the uh, Gilgit-Baltistan, 
other areas. We have particularly focused on a very important uh, segment of our society, our women, and the income transfer program focuses on households headed by women. And I think uh, we have focused a great deal on skill development, scholarships, particularly from the less uh, developed parts of the country. Now, who is to judge ultimately? Somebody in Citigroup or somebody in Finance Ministry or somebody in uh, the London School of Economics? Probably they all are capable and I think we should respect each other's point of view. But ultimately the judge will be the people of Pakistan. And that is the strength of democracies and that is the strength of Pakistan. And the elections will be held inshallah in the next few months and we shall see. The real test. So far in all the by-elections or most of them, the government <laughs> wins. <laughs> yeah. I just want to add a couple of minutes of uh, my observations on uh, the income support program that the minister referred to. Um, uh, one of the uh, benefits of, of, of retirement is that you can wear multiple hats. Uh, one of the hats I wear is that I'm on the board of BISP, Benazir Income Support Program, a board which was reconstituted about a year ago uh, at the insistence of the donor community because they wanted uh, a condition for continued support to that income support program was that the board be independent. So the government brought in six independent board members from outside. Uh, I have since then have had the opportunity of examining very, very carefully the, uh, uh, the accounts, the, the expenditures, the, the, the targets and the objectives of this, uh, of this support program. And I'm deeply impressed at the evaluations that I've seen, the evaluations which have been done by the donor community that likes, wants to see its money being well spent. Uh, the consensus is that it's an extremely well-targeted program. Uh, the consensus is that because it targets women head of households, it is generating uh, a, a new uh, 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 empowered role of women in the society. And the program is now reaching six million families. Uh, six million families uh, means average household size is six. That's 36 million people, largely in the rural areas, that really means that you are reaching virtually all of the rural poor if rural poverty is 30%, which is what the numbers show. So the program has enormous potential, and now the program is being developed as a conditional cash grant uh, program with several programs being attached to that program, and, the, and, and it has the potential of allowing the government to meet its, uh, um, its uh, Millennium Development Goals because conditional cash grants can create the demand for the MDGs by households, and then the line ministries can respond by creating appropriate supply in terms of educational institutions and health facilities in order for people to achieve the MDGs. Uh, the government, you know, its budgetary allocation was 40 billion last year. This year has been doubled to 70 billion. And if indeed the evaluations continue to be as good as they are, I think it will be one of the best income support programs 
uh, in developing countries. I know that the World Bank is already citing it as an exemplary program. So I think we should recognize where we do well, uh, regardless of which government is in power, so that you know, we don't just drown ourselves in doom and gloom stories. Great. Um, Dr. Johnson, there was a question about kind of the, when reform happens and crises. Yes. Um, too many countries tend to reform when they are under crisis. And um, for a long time, I was very worried about that when I worked in the IMF because when people don't understand the implications of the reforms they are making, it usually leads to problems. There were two particular areas, privatization and, um, and um, devaluation. Um, uh, um, for example, even now, I'm hearing stories about, you know, Malawi was in trouble, and um, um, so w w when the, other f um, the, the, the last president died, the new one came, and they changed the, the, um, the, the currency. Now, that change, in a sense, had become conditionality for a lot of money flowing in. But now I hear that some of the Malawians are saying, oh my God, look at all the adverse effects of the devaluation. Because when you wait for a long time um, and then devalue suddenly, of course you're going to have jumps in, in prices, for example. And people are not usually prepared for that kind of shock. On privatization, they usually say, okay, all, all your state enterprises are, are being very poorly run, so you have to privatize and then they draw up a program. But to implement that program usually takes a lot of capacity that sometimes the countries do not have. So y yes, uh, in fact, every time the IMF got into problems with countries, it was because the countries had reached crisis point before they took action, and then they, they partly did not understand some of the implications of the actions um, 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 they were taking, uh, and, and we are surprised that, oh my God, look at all the shocks, oh my God, we can't manage this process. So, so that's, that's very true. Thank you. Um, and I guess you're being asked to defend the causal interpretation you gave to the IMF. So. Yes, uh, I, I, I will do that. But before, before I move on to that question on uh, the IMF, I think uh, there are times when there are internal debates in a country as to what should be done. T take uh, Zimbabwe as an example where there were all sorts of internal debates and uh, what a crisis does is uh, sometimes it swings the debate in the direction of one group that's what uh, a crisis does and in other cases uh, uh, it accelerates the reform there's been some implementation and when the crisis strikes uh, it accelerates the reform. So chances are that at times people will say, oh, you wait for a crisis in to, to begin the reform. Not necessarily. There are times when there's already debate, there is some reform, and then a crisis hits and it accelerates that, uh, that reform. And I can have, I have several examples in that area. But l let me move on to this issue about uh, uh, the performance in Africa. And one has to take Take the 10-year period to 2008, so beginning 1998 to 2008, and you compare that period to the performance between 1988 and 1998. Okay? If you just took those 10-year periods, 
Definitely the performance in Africa on a more sustained basis was much better in the latter 10-year period, 98 to 2008, than it was uh, between 1988 to 1998. Now, the question then is the one of attribution. Who played the biggest role? And I think there were very many players in it. Definitely the domestic agents of, of change played a role. And uh, the IMF also played a role because the, it started this whole debate about removal of uh, distortions. I remember when I joined the bank, we had all these debates as to whether overvaluation helps development or not. Okay? In uh, the 21st century, that debate is no longer there. People always want to move on to appropriate pricing of even uh, uh, foreign exchange. Take inflation, I mean, we used to have debates, I remember, in the 80s. But most of the countries now aim for very low inflation. So macroeconomic management has changed a lot uh, when I compare the last about 15 years to the period in the 80s. So attribution is where the debate is. I know in Nigeria at one time they never wanted to sign an IMF program as such. It had to be a program by Nigerians. But you find that the elements at the end of the day are similar to an IMF program. Uh, okay, so we, we'll have time for one last round of questions. Uh, what I'd request people to do is, again, keep the question very short. If it's of public value, ask. If it's private value, just talk to the uh, panelists afterwards. They'll be here. Um, and also, try and ask a question which you think hasn't quite been asked. If your question is tangential to an existing question, don't ask it. Let's try to maximize the diversity of questions. So with those kind of rules in mind, let's open up again for the last round of, of uh, uh, questions. Um, gentleman up here, gentleman in the back, um, the lady in the middle, the gentleman up here and the gentleman there. So why don't you come up front, sorry. Uh, and there's a gentleman in the middle. So we'll take about four or five. Uh, keep your questions very short. Go ahead. Um, my name's uh, Rizwan Sayed. I'm a journalist with the Voice of America News Network. And my question to Dr. Abdul Sheikh is um, what, what role has corruption played in holding back economic growth of Pakistan? And what does your government plan to do to improve it? Because the topic of corruption wasn't really touched on uh, during uh, the speech earlier. Great. Okay. Um, go ahead, the gentleman. There was someone raising a hand right there. Why don't you move to the next person? Let's just minimize. Um. Hi. Um, my name's Tom. Um, so I run an advertising agency, which has kind of given me a bit of a different perspective on this. Um, tonight, I've heard a lot of talk on kind of ideas and the need for ideas and a lot of talk about implementation and that kind of breaks down to me to be kind of one end the policy the second end practice and there was a part in the middle that seems like it hasn't really been touched on tonight and I wondered if you thought that it was a challenge for economic development and that is the sale of those ideas so the piece between it which takes policy and puts it into practice so there's been talk about influencing influencing the influential, so who's at the top, and there's been some bits, um, a really nice story about uh, Kuala Lumpur or the Malays, I forget people's names, but I wondered anyway where you thought the sale of ideas sat in uh, putting policy back. Okay, thank you. Um, 
So, uh, lady, there's a gentleman in the middle. Why don't you um, take him first? And then there's a lady in the middle over there. If you can flip around the other side. Um, uh, I'm Do you mind raising your hand so they can see and wave up to you? Go ahead. I'm Kofi Kekeli. Um, I graduate from UCL. Um, can you please um, enlighten us on what you think have been the main factors that have uh, contributed to the growth in Africa? And also um, shed some small light about the speciality of the thinking within the economic growth. Most of the times we do think about the economic growth, GDP, blah, blah, blah. But if you talk about planning, within um, the context from a national level, it seems to be really lacking. That's how can we continue to have slums, whatever, continue to grow within the African and Southeast Asian context. What is the thinking within the policy at the national level? Okay. Um. Go ahead. And then gentleman over there raising his hand. Um, this is at an intergovernmental level when African countries, uh, South Asian countries get together. For example, at the Commonwealth, significant number of Commonwealth countries are from South Asia and Africa. Um, uh, the very bottom of all the policies are human rights. And uh, except for uh, countries uh, affected by military coup, Fiji and Pakistan, the Commonwealth has been very silent on many of the conflicts afflicting the Commonwealth countries for decades. Uh, what is your take on that, please? Okay. Um, gentleman up there. Okay. My name is Khuram. I'm a journalist from Pakistan, and my question is for Dr. Johnson. Um, over here, you talked about the context in which uh, policy advice needs to play out, but my uh, observation has been that the context is not always very clear. Um, and I'll give an example from uh, the World Bank in Pakistan, uh, was tasked with uh, drawing up a development program for the province of Balochistan, which is uh, stricken by a conflict these days. And in the course of uh, drawing up the program, they said we can't talk about the conflict because it's beyond our mandate, so we need to ignore that. Whereas all of the stakeholders that had come from Balochistan were saying the conflict is in fact the number one uh, issue that the, that the province is facing. And the danger in drawing up a development policy for a conflict-stricken zone uh, that ignores the conflict is that when you put the money into the province and into your development schemes, the money is more likely to land up inside the conflict economy rather than uh, um, produce actual development outcomes. So, you know, uh, I would like you to speak to, if, uh, if possible, uh, how you address this. Uh, you know, the, there could be a disconnect that policy okay. advice is designed to uh, uh, be offered up to a policy maker, but it may be drawn up uh, with the needs and requirements of the donor community in mind. And uh, as a result, there could be a Great. disconnect. Thank in you. How um, last burning question, someone who's desperate. and des I wish I could trade questions so we could have like a little efficient question surface, but somehow <laughs> I can't have question trading rights developed very well over here. Um, let's see, I'll go to the side of the room that I haven't gone. I haven't gone on that side, so why don't we pick, uh, why don't the lady behind the gentleman, sorry. Um, I'm going to get some gender diversity going in the questions as well. Go ahead. That'll be the last question. And then uh, the panelists are around afterwards, so feel free to kind of uh, talk to them one-on-one -on -one as well. Uh, I'm doing my MSc in Development Studies. Uh, my question is for Dr. Hafiz Sheikh. Um, you spoke about privatization and how important it is to privatize companies. And you spoke about the 33 transactions. I just wanted to know that how successful have the, those transactions been? And also, um, don't you think it's very important to have an environment where there is not uh, that much corruption so that the people who actually benefit with the privatization are not 
those who are close maybe to the ruling elite or, um, and it's actually efficient uh, privatization that's being taken place? Okay, great. Uh, thank you so much. So what, what I'll do is I'll, let me quickly divvy up sort of questions to the panelists. And if I, if I could request just a very short response to each one of these, because we basically have essentially three minutes left in the session. Uh, we'll probably go a few minutes over, but let's try and not go too much over. So uh, there are two questions, Dr. Sheikh, both related to you, I guess. One is the role of corruption and kind of relatedly privatization, but within that there's a, there's a question of corruption mixed into that. So if you want to respond to both simultaneously. I think uh, the role of corruption is really very important in uh, how countries progress, what growth trajectory they adopt, and the kind of society ultimately, you know, uh, takes form. Um, I think that I can think of many countries that have had high growth rates for long periods of time and are not considered to be entirely free of corruption. And I can see many countries uh, where there is corruption and in a way it has checked the growth rates. So as far as academic literature is concerned, I think there's broadly a consensus that corruption overall has more negative effects on growth than it does as a lubricator of things. As far as Pakistan is concerned, if uh, you know, um, that's uh, your primary uh, consideration, I would say that uh, at this moment, there are many institutions that are working in Pakistan freely which were not there before. And therefore, what one can do to counter corruption or check it or minimize it is to allow these institutions to function. So it's the first time in Pakistan history that we have a Supreme Court and other courts that are on a daily basis or on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis looking at issues of public procurement, public projects, and so on. That's a good sign. It's a welcome sign. Second, we have a free media. 80 channels, as I said yesterday, from 7 p.m. to 12 p.m., they do nothing but criticize the government for whatever their feelings may be, <laughs> including if there are any uh, allegations of corruption. Third, we have a public accounts committee, which is very active in the parliament. And as I said, for four years, it was headed by the leader of the opposition. Imagine a situation where the leader of the opposition, the leader of the Labour Party was heading the body to check corruption in government of the Conservative coalition. So that's unusual. We have uh, also a National uh, Accountability Bureau, which is headed by an independent person. And above all, people are going to vote. And in democracies, ultimately, especially all of you Pakistanis, you have a chance to decide whichever your preference may be to go and vote and either bring this government or its coalition. I don't want to be a partisan. I'm here just simply trying to say that this is a very valuable right that you have and we should welcome it. Uh, about uh, the uh, privatization, I feel that by and large privatizations are uh, successful if the process has been followed in a transparent way. In the case of Pakistan, the political elites could not really benefit because these were done in a transparent way through open bidding, which was televised. And in many instances, the buyers were reputable groups from outside of Pakistan. And I think uh, I can give some examples. Every few years, we used to have billions of 
government rupees or dollars go into banking sector reform because of patronage under public ownership. Now we don't have that. And even in a global crisis, our banking uh, banks have done very well. And the same is true of a lot of the others, but this is something we can discuss uh, you know, amongst ourselves in more detail. The final point about uh, the point that Mr. Kofi raised about what are the main factors of growth in Africa. See, I try to shy away from talking about regions of 50 countries and how they are doing. Because ultimately the decision-making unit is a government and a country and a society of a single country. So we have states, and within Africa you have variation, within Asia you have variation. So it all depends on how you get your own act together and the type of domestic policies. The, the main factors for growth, if you look at them, again at the risk of being repetitive, I think are three. Number one, countries that invested in their people got ahead, those that did not were left behind. Number two, countries that found a way to sell their products to others got ahead and others were left behind. So number one, human development. Number two, international mainstreaming partnership alliances. Nobody can do it alone. And number three, countries that relied on their private sector, on their businesses, brought them into the mainstream, facilitated their growth, got ahead. Countries that put exclusive burden of pulling everything on the governments were left behind. So these, in my view, would be the three broad, uh, you know, right. lessons. Luis, you, you also want to comment on the same question, because uh, it's part of the same thing, sort of the factors of growth in Africa and continuity of policy. Yeah. Um, uh, one broad area uh, in Africa has been the removal of distortions. I think. Uh, Many countries have done a lot in terms of uh, improving uh, the business environment. So that's one. But two is the financing. And financing can be broken down between foreign sources of financing where donors have uh, aligned resources to different country programs. But apart from donors, you see an increase in private sector flows now to a number of countries. I know in some of these countries you see natural resources being preferred by the private sector. But more recently you see a wider range of interests by uh, uh, foreign investors. In the, within the domestic economy, there has been a lot of domestic resource mobilization. And as I said earlier, the financial sector efficiency has improved a lot. And you see the financial sector also supporting uh, investments. So it is that whole policy regime, removal of uh, distortions, increased availability of financing that is supporting the growth. Thank you. Uh, and Dr. Johnson, there was a question about kind of the context and context not being clear. Um, so uh, if you wouldn't mind addressing that. Um, did I understand you to mean that um, sometimes the policymakers may distort the context or they do not themselves understand the context? And, and, and that disconnect came 
uh, because of um, developments after the ideas were created? Oh, be, 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 because one thing that um, we have found useful is doing scenarios in, in, in which you make assumptions about the context when, when you're uncertain. But usually scenarios are for things like what's happening in the world economy and, and so on. But if it comes to the worst, you can make scenario about uh, the, 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 the local situation too. But usually, most people would avoid um, um, saying anything concrete until they are sure about what the local situation is. And that usually is the safest thing to do. You must agree. In other words, you yourself can have independent observations or ask a lot of people about how do you see the situation. Uh, it, otherwise, there is no way in which you can be certain Okay. Uh, it does, I don't know if you want to tackle the last two questions. There were questions about the sale of ideas, kind of, I guess, um, the challenge of that, and also uh, a broader question about sort of uh, human rights and how you integrate that. The toughest ones are left for you, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> uh, yes, uh, human rights uh, should be protected, and uh, if the Commonwealth doesn't do that, then Commonwealth uh, needs to be reprimanded. I mean, that's all I can say. Human rights are critical. Now, I think uh, some of those human rights can be converted into uh, what economists can can understand and, and deal with. These have to do with, and, and these have been expressed by the United Nations in terms of the Millennium Development Goals, which is the right to have education, which is the right to have basic health, which is the right to have. Uh, 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 MDGs don't reach the oppressed people in Sri Lanka, the oppressed ethnic minorities. MDGs have no meaning at all. Right. right. So no, I agree. I, I think, I think, if these MDGs, which economists have a better understanding of, if these MDGs are not being achieved in a country, then clearly that's something that should be pointed out, that should be put in the public domain, and. People should be made, made aware that the government of the time is not doing its job in helping people achieve those components of their human rights. And, uh, and then let the people vote the government out of power. Uh, I think information about whether or not those MDGs are being met is, is critical in order to get the government to change its stance on, on, on how it's spending its money. Uh, uh, to achieve the MDGs. And, and just the, the sale of ideas question sort of. Uh. <coughs> now, I think, I think that's a very important question. I think, I think the role of advocacy in, uh, in development is critical. I think we don't do a very good job of advocacy. I think uh, uh, in countries such as Pakistan, uh, things are beginning to change with, uh, with much freer uh, media. Uh, you have a much greater, larger platform in which to debate policy issues and create the consensus that you need to get difficult policies implemented. Now, um, again going by the example of Pakistan, uh, even though we have 80 channels uh, which are very, very free, uh, I and I think Khurram would agree with me, uh, he and I have uh, uh, work together uh, in media campaigns, uh, in analyzing budgets, etc. in Pakistan. Uh, by and large, economic literacy 
of the media is very poor. Uh, and, and I think that's an area that uh, educational institutions uh, uh, and government, we all need to work in order to improve economic literacy of anchors, of correspondents, so that we can have meaningful debates on uh, to bring about policy change and a consensus uh, to bring about difficult policy change. Great. Um, so on that note, I wanted to again thank a lot uh, the panelists for taking the time out. This is uh, particularly precious for them. I'm very grateful for you coming here and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you also for the panelists for sharing your time.